Talking industry, providing the manufacturing community with a voice and connecting industry. The Live Editions, brought to you from the Manufacturing Technology Centre, in partnership with Oinkner, Rittel and ePlan. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's make a start. Um, for those of you who weren't here before, my name is Andy Pye. I'm consultant editor at DFA Media Group, and we publish a range of uh, publications, both print and automation, in the manufacturing sector, both print and online in the manufacturing and automation sector. Let's get the words out in the right order. Right, this section is called uh, is on overall equipment effectiveness, or otherwise known as OEE, but we're not going to go down into the mathematics of OEE. Um, it's the gold standard for measuring manufacturing productivity. So we want to look at ways of identifying how manufacturing time can be improved, how we can become more productive. Um, but if you do go into the, man the mathematics, um, unfortunately, most UK manufacturers are below 60% on that scale and over half are under 40%. So there's certainly uh, work to be done. So we're going to try and look at some of the straightforward measures that, uh, that are available um, to improve things. Um, I've got a, a very skilled panel of, of four speakers, and my normal method is to introduce them very briefly or get them to introduce themselves very briefly in 30 seconds. So we'll go through that in reverse order. So fourth speaker first and up to the first speaker who will then get... Uh, sort of three minutes or so on um, expounding their version of or their interest in this particular aspect. We'll then have a, a quick discussion amongst ourselves about things that have been raised. We'll then move on to the second speaker, same thing, until we reach the end. And then after that, we'll have a, a public Q&A where you can ask your own questions. Um, there are two ways of doing it. The uh, Traditional way is to put your hand up, and we have uh, my colleague Aaron here who will have a microphone and um, he will run up and down the stairs, which is something I find harder and harder to do. So um, he will take your questions that way. But if you're into high tech, there's a QR code on the main screen and also behind me, which enables your, your phone um, to load a WhatsApp group, and you can then um, put your questions in that WhatsApp chat, and they appear miraculously on my console here. So I'll take, depending on what happens, um, a combination of um, personal and WhatsApp questions. Um, we had an equal balance in the first session that we did this morning. In fact, the, the last session, all the questions came in on the WhatsApp chat. So obviously, it's a very IT literate audience we had there. Okay, so very quickly. Um, we have um, in our fourth speaker, Steve Cartwright, Chief Engineer for Technology, um, Digital Engineering at the Manufacturing Technology Center. Um, before him, we have Sam Kirby, um, who's Industrial IT Specialist at Novatech. Um, and they will both have some solutions to some of the problems that um, our first two speakers, through their time going out in the field, will have identified. So our second speaker is Duncan Stanton, who is Managing Director of Le Monde Automation. And that leads me to our first speaker, 
Um, first but not least is Luke Walsh, uh, Managing Director of Brain Boxes, and he will introduce himself uh, forth and, um, and then go into his presentation. So to start with Steve, just a, a very quick introduction to yourself, please. Okay, morning, it's still morning, yeah, morning. Just about. So uh, Steve Cartwright, uh, I'm the Chief Engineer for Digital, Digital Engineering here at the MTC. Uh, I've been here for two years, uh, but I come from a background of automotive. There's a few friendly faces in the audience that I recognize that I've worked with alongside for a long time. But um, yeah, 37 years in automotive where uh, integration and standardization of automation, connectivity, launch, OEE, target setting uh, has been the mainstay of my career so far. Right. And, uh, as I say, I've been here for two years in digital engineering. Thank you. Sam? Good morning, everyone. Um, as Andy said, I'm Sam Kirby from Novatech. Um, at Novatech, I'm uh, an industrial automation specialist. Um, I wear, wear a few hats. Um, but I started off my career uh, as an apprentice electrical engineer and moved, moved into, into automation design for factory and machine automation. Um, and now my primary role is, is kind of helping organizations see where they can realize the benefits of, of digital manufacturing and transformation. Lovely. Duncan, fresh up from Crawley, I assume. I don't think you can get fresh from Crawley, to be <laughs> fair. But, uh, so I'm Duncan Stanton, uh, Managing Director of Le Monde Automation. Uh, I started at Le Monde in 1997, having trained as a teacher. Decided I didn't really like crowd control in schools, so um, entered into the world of automation. And actually, my final degree project uh, was essentially a motion control system and HMI and PLC, which I designed, not knowing those things existed, which uh, I'm glad. I wish I'd known when I'd uh, set about designing everything from scratch. Um, so come interested in sort of OEE and uh, efficiency in, uh, in uh, manufacturing sort of through my uh, role as a, um, with Le Monde Automation sort of technically. Thank you. Uh, which leads me to Luke. So tell us about yourself and then into your presentation. Uh, hi, hi, everyone. My name is Luke Walsh. I'm the <coughs> Managing Director of Brainboxes. We're an industrial communication equipment manufacturer based in Liverpool in the UK. Uh, we've been around for 30 nine years the company is one year younger than i am it was started by my dad it's a family business uh, we've now got an office in the us uh, and in europe uh, and we distribute through uh, companies like rs and Farnell and mauser and digikey um, and it's been very nice to have a few conversations here today with people who've used our products for years and are very pleased with them uh, we pride ourselves on our technical support and our lifetime warranty uh, so that's that, so, so very quickly, OEE, I, I am, sorry Andy, very briefly going to go into the mathematics of it because I, I do think it's important that uh, we, we don't get afraid of what the numbers are and what they could mean because uh, that's one of the first things that often puts people off from starting that journey to understanding what OEE is. So OEE is basically three percentages multiplied together. So the first percentage is for what fraction of the day is my machine available? So if you've got an eight hour day, and your machine is the lights green on it for four of those hours, then you've got 50% availability. The, the second number is performance. And performance is basically saying, how quickly do I expect to make my widgets? And how quickly am I really making my widgets? So I might be making uh, a little plastic model like this, like we're making outside, uh, and I might expect to make them in five minutes. Uh, but if I am actually making them in 10 minutes, then my performance is 50%. And then finally, quality, which is often the most subjective measure, and the most difficult to 
actually get understand and put put a real number against is a determination of uh, is this what the customer wants and is this to the standard the customer wants it. Uh, so I might have produced 100 widgets and out of those 100 widgets produced, only 50 of them might have passed my quality standard. So again, I'm at 50%. So if I were to take those three percentages, multiply them together, 50% times 50% times 50%, my factory's OEE is 12.5%. And what that means is for only 12.5% of the time, is my factory actually doing something useful? And these can be really sobering figures sometimes when you look at them. Uh, we, we, all, we have a factory in, in Liverpool, and uh, my production manager and his team feel like they're doing an excellent job. But sometimes the numbers can reflect something very different to what we think is happening. And that's a really important step on the journey. The really important step is to go from anecdotal hearsay what we saw when we were last there to actually real quantitative information some facts on the ground um, and those facts can often lead you in a direction that you didn't expect it to go in so that, that's the first thing the the numbers are important and the meaning of them is is actually simple uh, and then the second thing is um, you don't have to do this all at once you can take it as a step-by-step -step journey and in fact you can uh, get a huge amount of information just out of two signals. So if you imagine two digital sensors, one of them might be to see if the light is green on the top of your machine. That will, When that light is green, then the machine's available. If the light's not green, if it's red or orange, the machine is no longer available. So one simple sensor there can tell you your availability. And then the other simple sensor can tell you your performance i.e. every time a product goes past on a conveyor, past the proximity sensor, you may detect, oh, there's a product, I've just made one. Oh, there's another product, oh, I've just made another one. And so with those two signals, you can extract a huge amount of information. And for most SMEs in the UK, that is a step change from where they were to where they could be. So that, that's my very quick intro. Um, it's really important not to just go in there and um, say from a management perspective, this is what we're doing, do it. It's much more important to get the buy-in of the team. That's another area of conversation we should have. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating journey that we, we're all at some point in that journey and we all need to figure out what the next step is along it. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Um, I mean, we'll just open that up for discussion briefly. Um, I mean, the way you've explained the numbers, I mean, with 12.5%, I mean, does that mean that 40% really isn't quite as bad as it was presented? Or what, what should people be aiming for? Yeah, well, I, I, most SMEs, like you say, are under or around that 40% number. And actually, that's not terrible in the, mm. in the UK SME context. Um, often with OEE, um, because the quality measure is so subjective at times, all you need to do is be consistent. And as long as you do something consistent, you might have a number which is there or thereabouts representative of reality. And as long as you're consistently measuring it, then you can see an improvement or a decline. And that's key, ultimately. Yeah, so it's a relative measure as much as an absolute one, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah. Sam, do you, um, do you use the OEE figures greatly or, or do you? Um, well, with our customers, we see that OEE is is a, is a great tool, but it's it's one of the tools available um, when you when you're talking about digital digital tools available to a, to a manufacturing organisation. Um, yeah, OEE is great um, as as long as you can use that tool to make a difference. 
Okay, and uh, Steve, what's your uh, what's your feeling on this? Yeah, I mean, since I've been at the MTC, I'm quite surprised at, at actually how low OEE is measured in the UK. Um, certainly, coming from an environment where you know early to mid '90s with an OEE is a typical environment to work in, uh, quite pressured, and you're looking at every ounce of available time. Uh, so when we start talking at forty percent, uh, the problem I have with that is that we're then focusing predominantly on the wrong issues when you're looking at productivity. We have an, an awful lot of discussion around, we want to automate a particular application where you're automating a facility running at 40% OEE uh, and you're plastering over the gaps, you're actually wasting money. Uh, and really a lot of focus needs to be bringing on that base OEE level up before you start focusing on any more about productivity. At least if you can measure something, you can manage it to, very a, much to so. a degree. You can act on that data, yeah. very much yeah. so. Okay, which takes me to Duncan. So your comment on that and then leading into your presentation, please. Uh, so one of the things that uh, is often overlooked um, with OEE is, is the, the, sort of the semantics of, um, of the human interaction with machines, how quickly problems are resolved, reported, things like this. So one of the things I'm going to touch on briefly is how we can improve uh, because unless you've got a completely humanless factory you're, you're going to have some form of human intervention when that red or that amber light lamp comes on and it's how that's dealt with how it's reported that can drive efficiency forward so with that in mind uh, one of the um, applications i've been involved with uh, on several sites is um, putting alarm displays um, on big screens above uh, above a machine, either side, uh, so that w when the operator sees that it's stopped, they glance up to a say, 72 inch telly, essentially, and they can see that in feed number one is blocked, jammed, or run out of material. They can go straight to the point rather than walking around the entire machine, going to an HMI, looking at, okay, what's where, what, where, where the problem is, then walking back, fixing it, then going back to clear the issue. So getting that information to an operator is as much part of solving the problem as as having a more efficient machine so having that information having we mentioned lamps earlier having bright visible uh, warning lamps um, having things like the alarm information or something identifying the area of the problem really visible it's actually those are very very simple wins that can really drive efficiency uh, one of the other projects I've been involved with, a, a customer came to me and said, we want to know our theoretical uh, uh, production. So we want to know, we, we've got this mould here that's making four, uh, this, this mould's making four items at a time, this one's making six items at a time. Um, how can we get a, the, a sort of theoretical finished goods? Um, so what we did there is we used um, some uh, wireless uh, switches and literally every time the mould closed for the, for the four up one it made the contact and we added four to the theoretical total and they could then compare at the end how many finished goods they actually had and that was a really simple win a bit like um, it was mentioned about yeah, monitoring the lamp but actually sort of things like if you've got a, something that's making say four mouldings at a time every time that moulding closes is a, is a theoretical four widgets uh, so monitoring that is uh, it, it can be very simple. It doesn't have to be particularly onerous to, to do that, and you can do that with relatively 
simple, cheap hardware, even if, even if you don't take it to an external system, but to have an idea of, um, of just how many theoretical parts can then compare to your actual parts is a, is a, real, uh, a real boon. So um, in, in such a situation, are you, um, are you actually converting that to an OEE measure or simply like a local measure that, um, that you can measure where you, can, you were and where you will be? Uh, you can do either. I mean, we've got um, one, of our, one of the projects I was involved with was a uh, colostomy bag factory uh, local to us in Crawley. And they had a number of different uh, machines and they have two shifts and they wanted to look at um, the sort of productivity of shift A versus shift B. So we could actually get the, the information and actually see that one shift was outperforming the other shift. And then you could look at, start to look at the drivers for that. Is it because it's a night shift? Is it because there's a different demographic? Is it because it's at night? Is it because there are a different type of people to work at night or work during the day? What are the other distractions that are going on during that shift that are not necessarily connected to the machine? You know, if it's if it's a night shift that's not performing, then that can be down to um, just the circumstances of there's less people around, so they can go for an extended smoke break or whatever, whatever's holding the production up. Uh, you know, it can be all sorts of different reasons, but the human aspect is one that's quite often overlooked. Uh, so, how how quickly problems can be resolved um, as, as a as a first step, and also, are there any other sort of external influences? For example, the time of day, the demographic demographic of the people you've got on shift. Have you got the people with the right skills to fix the problems quickly? So, these all add up to to yeah to sort of improving efficiency. So you're kind of almost a management consultant as well as a, a supplier of equipment to a degree. Is that right? Can be, yeah. It's um, it's uh, so one of the uh, one of the one of the, one of our customers actually has um, a telly in their um, in their canteen, uh, which kind of tracks a virtual whip. So they've got the almost have a competition between the two shifts who's making the most widgets per hour. It's not necessarily the brute I'd take, but um, it's sort of the one that seems to suit them. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Okay, well, I'm going to do what I said I wasn't going to do, which is to take a question now because it's nice and relevant. Um, and it says, um, I had experience where we measured OEE at around 25%, and everyone was scared of it, and it actually deactivated some people. Sorry, demotivated some people. How to get over and accept this before even thinking of improving? Um, uh, Sam, do you want to take that one first and, and Luke? Yeah, I think that comes down to, uh, so we get a lot of inquiries for, you know, we, we want to start measuring OEE, right? But, but how do you start with that? And it's all about how digitally mature the company is and how digitally, how digitally ready they are. So that's the digitally ready part is, is about building the foundations within the business and, it, and managing the expectations of what the outcomes may be from, from implementing digital tools within a business. You know, it might it might mean that the results aren't going to look very good, but um, it's all about the, the, the groundwork beforehand in, in rolling out any solutions. I suppose if you get a low figure, you you know, you've got more room for improvement. Exactly, yeah. There's, there's <laughs> a, a bigger ROI there, I suppose, yeah. 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 Um, Luke, what's your, um, what's your impression on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as a low number represents huge opportunity, ultimately. And so, yes, looking at the low number can be demotivating, but it also, you, you can not use it as a whip to crack on the workforce. You can say, with the capability and the process we've been using so far, 
we've we've you know got the results the businesses needed to survive, and yet we have all this extra headroom for extra productivity using the the, the equipment we have here today. We don't need to double the size of our floor space. We don't need to buy new machinery necessarily. We can use what we've got with 25% OEE, and we could comfortably double output and would still only be at 50% OEE. So it's a low number, while demotivating from one perspective, also represents huge opportunity. If you're at 95% OEE and your customer demands that you make twice as many widgets, well, it's going to be really hard to do that, right? Uh, but if you're at 25% and your customer needs twice as much, then the capability in theory is there. And it's just about using the right tools to solve the issues that are facing you. And so that, that's always how I see it, not as the motivating factor, but as a huge opportunity. So managing expectations and recognizing opportunities would be the, the summary, I guess. Yeah. Steve? Uh, I'm used to the... Um the phrase that it's a team game, not a blame game. I mm. think a lot of the time when you start looking at OEE and performance targets, um, you have to, in your organization, lose that agenda. Um, the, the approach is that everyone has got to be on the same page to get that performance up. Um, and it's not at all to, to pass the buck around an organization to try and find where the losses are. And once you get over that hurdle, um, I think the majority of times that I've experienced it, uh, it's quite engaging when you can see that drive on a week-by-week -week basis improving. Is and, there a uh, clash in culture in the UK in between being taking the positive approach and, and, um, and the blame game? Are we worse than other, organ other nations? Um, I don't know whether we're worse than other nations. I think we, um, I think we underestimate the power of OEE as a, as a rudimentary metric. There are, as the panel said, a lot of other metrics, but as a simple metric, I think if we can push OEE to make us more productive, um, then obviously that in, has benefits in terms of the, the ability for us to grow our automation, our productivity. Uh, they all contribute to a very rudimentary metric such as OEE. Thank you. Well, Sam, I, perhaps it's time for you to, to give your presentation now and start to talk about... Um, some of the techniques that can be used to solve the sorts of problems that are found in the field. Yeah, sure. So, uh, like I said before, I'm here representing Novatech, and at Novatech, we are a leading supplier of OT and IT automation solutions. Um, we specialize in, in deploying digital tools that help organizations, whether that's manufacturing or utilities, um, on enhancing their uh, operations, um, whether that's from process control improvement cybersecurity enhancement uh, or starting their manuf digital manufacturing journey or digital transformation journey. Um, and I think what we find is when people, you know, we're here to talk about OE, but the good and the bad, I suppose. Um, so if we talk about, like I said before, if a, if a customer comes to us and says we want to start measuring OEE, we kind of help them take a step back a little bit and, and look back look back at the, the bigger picture. Um, so it's it's all about making sure, like I said before, if you're, if you're digital, digital readiness and digital maturity. So digital maturity is, is where you look at your organization and try and find out if certain aspects of your organization is ready for, for connecting various sensors or connecting various bits of software to, to gather this information. So if you've got a, a business, whether that's small, small or large enterprise business, um, and you're looking at a particular line, for example, that line may only have PLCs or, or 
or low-level automation, um, but you also may have a, a company that's got site-wide visibility or uh, enterprise execution systems. Um, so it's all about managing goals and expectations. Um, and then if you go back to, to the sort of the digital readiness, the first step with that would be would be to be make sure you, you've set a strategy. So what do you want to achieve from, from rolling out OE tools as such, um, or just digital tools in general? Um, what are the goals? So that could be a, a short-term goal, um, a low-level goal for a particular line, or a larger organization goal. But they must run through that throughout the business. Otherwise, such projects will just they'll, they'll you know they will fall fall flat and um, not get the buy-in from the people around these, these tools that you're trying to implement. Um, so, so the first step is is goals, uh, making sure that you are you are setting those goals realistically. Um, and then if you um, once you've once you've set the goals, it's all about getting the people on board. So making sure you you've created a good team around you. So that's a sort of a cross section of the business, not just engineering, um, to make sure that everyone is involved and, and make sure the project is, is a success. Um, and also embracing technology. I'm not saying um, sort of uh, deploy every technology that you see because that's definitely what, not what you should do. But um, embracing all technology, explore it, um, allow your your members of staff to to come up with ideas and explore explore different ideas using different bits of technology, whether that's a digital bit of software or hardware or whatever it may be. Um, and then after that, making sure you celebrate success. You know, it's it's a long journey when you're talking about digital transformation or digital manufacturing. So any little bit of of improvement is should be celebrated um, and it should it should be rewarded in in some sort of way. Um, and it's a journey, right? So you've got to make sure that um, you, it's, a, it's a cycle, you know, you, you're keeping on top of it. And um, it's, a, it's an, an evolving strategy. Um, and you've got to make sure that um, you're keeping on top of all of the aspects that I've just mentioned there, uh, in particular the team aspect and making sure you've still got buy-in from all levels of the organization. How does it vary according to company size or is it difficult to generalize? Um, often the larger companies um, don't start off on particularly the right track. <laughs> right. Um, for example, if you've got a large corporate organization that's trying to roll out um, a digital transformation journey or strategy, but from a high level um, without getting buy-in from, from various sites across the globe, for example, that's where you might get some, some defense from, from local, local sites. Um, but then likewise, if you try and start something in-house, um, you know, the the life cycle of, of deploying a digital solution from the ground up is, is hard work. And that's why us at Novatech, we try to use off-the-shelf customizable solutions that are supported um, by, by particular vendors and partners. Um, so you haven't got to carry the, carry the burden of, of looking after a product. As such. In a smaller company, um, there's more flexibility less bureaucratic treacle is that right or does it vary i mean are some large companies yeah that's that's right yeah sometimes it is is easier to roll out particular particular initiatives um, within a smaller organization um but again it's all about awareness of of what you want to achieve it's making sure everyone's on the right page so duncan what what do you see as the limitations of, of working with smaller companies rather than larger ones <clears throat> well i think we've really touched on it with um uh, Luke and uh, Sam both touched on um, on sort of getting buy-in and getting buy-in to anything you do is key to always key to the success of anything really. So 
and making sure you get effective buy-in and and explain why why you're trying to do it. And ultimately, you know, um, you know people on the on, on the factory floor, if they, if the factories you know, or your equipment's being more efficiently, then there's more money in the pot potentially to to pay them more money. So, I mean, that's always a, a great motivator. Um, if there's if there's some kind of reward, you know, if we can improve the efficiency, we can pay you more money. That's always a uh, quite a, a good motivator. But it shouldn't be the prime motivator because, you know, money as a motivator is um, is a poison chalice. Um, but it's it's certainly it's certainly for for some yeah for some people it is a motivator and it's it's a one part of a of a buy in of um, of you know yeah because. It's particularly in automotive, I and mean, I, I do a lot with automotive, and the um, and it's almost savage uh, the, the 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 levels of uh, of efficiency you have to run at to to remain competitive in automotive, and I'm sure I'm sure Steve would attest to that. It's yeah, it's yeah um, yeah the 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 anecdote of when um, when Austin uh, launched the Mini in the '60s or whenever it was, and, uh, and I think Ford took one apart and. Reckon they were losing sort of twenty quid on every one they built. Um, that's how sort of savage the automotive industry can be. So it's the importance. I think depends on the industry as well. Mm. So auto- automotive, um, automotive, for example, it's it's extremely savage. I should imagine pharmaceutical uh, because of the, the numbers involved with pharma, pharma yeah, pharmaceutical uh, industry. That's probably less. Um, Cutthroat, so to speak, because they're relying on other things like patents rather than, um, yeah, rather than sort of uh, relying on a base price for essentially their version of the same product. So it's it's, but getting buy-in at all levels is is is, is really the, the most important thing. And is that easier in a small company because there are fewer people involved? Or um, well, I think when a smaller company, you, they, they will probably more likely to see the results of it um, rather than it being seen as something that's being passed down from the global mm. uh, global, uh, global conglomerate. But um, yeah, I think smaller companies, to a certain extent, are uh, yeah less likely to have the limitations of of well, we we've, we've always done it this way. Um, and and sort of limitations in terms of imagination because you know they're, they're going to be less constrained, more likely to be uh, you know we, you know as a corporate organisation we only use X Y Z. We're not going to look at anything else. Or a smaller organisation, yeah, you can you can propose something a bit left field or mm. uh, which may be cheaper or better. So yeah, that's that's. That's one of the challenges of the sort of bigger organisations. This is if they're only going to use um, a certain brand or a certain uh, version, of a certain type of software. Uh, that can be a limiting factor. Yeah. So, the, so should we say lack of imagination? Like the um, there was um, in the eighties, there was a uh, strapline for IBM, which was no one ever got sacked for specifying IBM. So there is a certain amount of nervousness of suggesting uh, something other than the known brand or other than something that's been approved and essentially proven in an organization which is it's uh, the, the the consequences of making a, a poor choice are multiplied by the size of the organization so um, it's it's probably easy yeah it's more difficult to, to steer someone away or steer an, a larger organization away from their comfort zone 
uh, in terms of the equipment or software they want to use. So in brain boxes, how does, um, you must deal with companies of lots of different sizes, lots of different sectors. Is, is there any guidance you can offer in terms of where it's easier, where it's harder? Yeah, I, I, I personally think you need either a champion, a crisis, or a new person new to the role to make this thing happen. It doesn't really matter what size the company is. If you've got one of those three, then that gives you the impetus to make a project happen. Uh, so we, we work with a company near us who were a, a large company, but they had a champion who could knock down walls between departments um, and not necessarily encourage teamwork, but he could make it happen. Um, and that, that was essential for one company we worked with. In, in another company, when someone is new to the role, they have an opportunity to make their mark. And so they're open to discussing new ideas. And so if you can find that person who is new to the role, that's another really great way of making a project happen. Uh, of course, a crisis is a, it will motivate the whole company to reevaluate all their options. Um, and we, we've also worked with companies where the top level introduced the project and the, the maintenance team um, on the shop floor were those who were tasked with implementing it. And they were complete skeptics at the start, but they were told to work with us because the, the bosses had told them to work with us. And so trying to turn them from uh, skeptics into champions of what we were doing was a big challenge. And so you really need to have a quick win in those situations. You need to start small and you need to focus on where, where is the problem really? Uh, what can we do to help you to tackle the problem that's facing you day to day? Uh, and so we, we installed a monitoring system into this uh, large distributor. And what the monitoring system indirectly told them was how busy each of the shifts were. And so suddenly the maintenance team had real data that they could go to the night shift with and say, look, you, you never used to let us do maintenance at night. You said you were too busy. But this graph clearly shows you're not busy. We want to do our maintenance at night. And they no longer could argue the case for being too busy. And so that maintenance team went from being completely skeptical of what we were offering to then next time we arrived at the plant, they were showing us all kinds of stuff and trying to get us to do all kinds of weird and wonderful projects to help them in their next problems. And so as soon as you can kind of bring people on board and convert them from being skeptical of yet another management initiative, for example, to actually this is useful, this is benefiting me personally in my day-to-day -day role, then you, you no longer have to knock the boards down. You, you have to, you get, you're getting dragged into all kinds of situations then. So, so like, yeah, like I said, crisis, somebody new to a role, um, or a champion, any of those three is really and helpful. that gets you over that sort of initial credibility hurdle that, uh, that enables you to get lots more benefit. Definitely. Well, Steve, I see you've been writing a lot of notes, so... so uh, Share them with us. <laughs> I guess that's the beauty of going last is I get to nick some of the good strap lines that the panellists have come out with. But um, my take uh, on this really is less about the technical side but the time side of it. Um, what I find is that most organisations are just plain busy. Um, the problem with being too busy is that you then get a level of complacency. Uh, you get a level of complacency around everyday issues. And the, the trouble is with everyday issues is they're easy to fix. They're visible. Um, those are the ones that are, uh, are prevalent that you can go in and fix. And um, it's often overused, but if you use the iceberg analogy, uh, everybody tries to fix everything above the water. 
that everything below the water is actually what's probably causing you more OEE issues than the ones on the top. These are the persistent one, two, three second breakdowns, not the four or five hour breakdowns that might happen once a week. Um, the two, three, four second breakdowns are the one that are stopping the throughput that can manifest itself into uh, a hit further on in the production line that's then hidden. Uh, and if they're not challenged, um, they can mount up to significant losses, um, but it's often hidden. And that data is then generally overlooked because it's not evident, it's not out in the open. Um, and if it's not immediate or accessible and it's not interpretable in terms of that data, then it's generally a missed opportunity. Um, we said or the term data transformation was used earlier, and we like to use that phrase around business trying to extract every ounce of performance data out of their facility. Um, and it's as much about the people in that business as it is the data itself. I mean, I've lost count the amount of times in my career where people have said, oh, well, I need that data. Um, but actually never challenged, well, why do you need that data? Why do you need a specific piece of data that the rest of the business doesn't need? And it's taken people away from their core function to go and create a new piece of data that is going to be used in a different way to argue a case in a different way. Uh, there are standard calculations out there to be used. It should be standard data. And that data has to be trusted. That phrase, trusted data, has to, be, has to be at the forefront of what you're doing. Um, and that means that, for me, um, taking the time up front to standardise that data is key from what I've learned in my career. Um, standardising data around OEE is such a big opportunity, um, but that includes standardising that equation. Believe it or not, I've been into lots of customers who play around with the calculation because they don't like the answer that it's telling them. Um, the calculation, just standardise it, just standardise where the trigger points are um, for the data as well as the standard of the calculation and make that throughput of your business. Make it evident every, every step of the term, uh, whether that's for the availability data, the performance data or the quality data for me. Uh, and just to go back on, on something that was said about technical availability on product, you know, that's a big impact on the availability of your facility. Understanding what you're buying how that equipment will be recovered in the event of a failure, uh, simple steps about how a HMI, where the HMI is located, simple steps that are going to improve the mean time to respond, mean time to repair, will all have an impact, especially if you're looking at all of those issues below the waterline. They're simple, simple things to do that can challenge uh, how you perform. Um, but the data doesn't need to be 100%. It doesn't need to have every single base covered. And we, another issue we find is that everybody wants everything now. Um, and I'm afraid uh, if you do that, you'll never get off the ground. Um, somebody mentioned earlier some key milestones in terms of metrics. That's the path. Once you've started on that path and you can understand it's putting you in issues, then put the focus onto where the small changes that are below the waterline can hit. But don't try and get everything below the waterline when you haven't got the basics sorted. Um, that appreciation of the data um, will really make more of a meaningful choice for people. Uh, in other words, you've got to help drive OEE. Um, it's an understanding of that data, but more importantly, the decision-making capability that that data gives to you. So don't just think as a load of data. It's what's it actually telling me? What am I going to go and do? So we work with companies to understand the importance of those losses, um, and we give them further help in interpreting their existing data. Um, unlocking new data, um, data that they didn't think they needed but actually would help them. 
uh, then the visualization of that data. Um, the days of data mining for data to give you a story of how something is, we've got to get over that. That data has got to be immediate, it's got to be in front of you, and it's just going to tell you what to go and do. And that's back to my point about time. People need to have the time to go and fix things. They need to have time to go and interpret what the data is telling them unless you present it to them in a manner that they can go and fix it. So using that data um, makes people focus on the right issues. Uh, it'll help drive OEE, and that will lead to the optimization of facilities performance. It will give you greater productivity. And believe it or not, a greater productivity gives you a more sustainable footprint in the long run. That's what my take is on it. Okay, well, that's very interesting. I mean, the, the issue of the immediacy of data is, is an important point, and it, it um, gels very well with one of the questions that's come in while you've been speaking, which is, um, how do I calculate OEE if I can't detect rejects during my manufacturing process? What if I can only detect rejects hours or days later? <laughs> mm, that's an interesting one. Then uh, e even, even, I mean, I take it there's no capability of inline measuring because of the size of the, the complexity of the product in that instance. Well, it doesn't say. I mean, I don't know if anyone wants to expand on that. We've got a microphone if, uh, if they'd like to. Um, or you can remain anonymous. But, not a problem. I mean, for me, that, that quality data, there's no reason, okay, if it takes a week to come around, um, you're only going to be fixing quality data with the facility over a certain amount of times. Mm. It's, it's chopping everything off. It, it's, you know, what are the low-hanging fruit that you can go at immediately? Uh, and then looking and putting plans in place for the longer-term quality issues that you're getting. Is it the product or is it the facility that's causing the quality issues? Mm. Anyone else got any comments on that they'd like to uh, to raise? Uh, I, I, so uh, on our production line, <clears throat> there's been times when we've had issues. And from the point of view of the person running the production line, these issues appear random. Um, and actually, it's because we don't understand the root cause. Um, and I think the same applies to understanding your quality data. You, you think you can't measure it until later. Well, you don't understand the root cause of what's going on in the field potentially. So you, you might need to change your process to understand quality better. Um, but, uh, and and uh, just to come to another point before I forget it, because I, I had this in my, I have not made any notes. Um, if, you, if you want to know if um, something you, if your system, your in-house system to measure OEE, for example, is working for you, what, the way, what I suggest you do is switch it off for a day and see who complains. If, if no one complains, then your measurement system's not working because no one's using <laughs> it. Um, uh, the, the, the other day, uh, so we've, we've installed an energy monitoring system on our plants, and I, I had to change something um, to <coughs> upgrade some aspects of the software, and we just turned the rest of the system off for the day. My production manager came straight to me and said, where's the energy monitoring data? And it was at that point I thought, ah, great, this is working. Um, the production manager wants to know the data's been surfaced to him in real time, and he's making decisions based on what the data's telling him. So that, that's a, an excellent way of knowing if what you've implemented is working. Just try switching it off for a little bit and see if anyone notices. <laughs> Practical advice. Um, another sort of related question, which is um, moving sort of out of direct manufacturing, and can you apply OEE elsewhere? So. Um, can you, can you, would you recommend implementing OEE in a research organization 
uh, where time is money doesn't apply as strongly as in manufacturing. Um, you know, but um, presumably, quality is still a factor. Is, has anyone got any experience of that sort of idea? Or are you totally solidly committed to manufacturing only? We've had, a, uh, we've had similar conversations about our workshop here, being an RTO organization. Um, but we've extrapolated elements of that OEE calculation. So we'll look at the availability of the equipment rather than the whole OEE capability. But we'll look at the, uh, the availability of individual pieces of equipment and the flow of the work through that workshop yeah. rather than focusing on generic OEE, which day to day would be a, a calculation that wouldn't carry over. So you adapt the model yeah. to a different yeah. situation. But using the standard elements sense, of that calculation, you yeah. still use the yeah. same. Okay, well, we're turning yellow, which means we're going to turn red on my monitor in a minute. So we've got one more question um, that's come in. So I'll, I'll take it from the far end towards the near end, my perspective. Um, and it's a bit of a curveball, so it'll be a fun one to finish. How, how is the topic of cybersecurity handled when implementing OEE in an OT world? <laughs> Anyone fancy that one, Sam? Uh, I think I kind of understand the question. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing, unless they're talking about you know physically getting the data from bits of equipment and, and what's the threat of that. Obviously, there's 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 ways and means around protecting against threats from you know accessing data remotely. Um, if that's if that's where the question was going, I'm not sure if, if that was. A, uh, I've read it as it. presented <laughs> again. If anyone wants to expand on their question, we can certainly make that possible. No, okay. Uh, anyone got any further comments, Luke? Uh, just in the same way you'd handle cybersecurity and all those situations where you're taking data from machines on the shop floor, uh, you need to consider all the normal things like uh, is your network segregated? Is it in a separate to the rest of the factory network? Uh, are you separating your monitoring part of the network from the maybe the real-time part of the network that's doing the control? Have you considered encryption and authentication? Do you need the data to go to the cloud? It sounds good, but for a lot of people, it's not necessary to keep the data in the building. Um, there's, there's a whole host of standard issues. and <coughs> There's a lot of good advice out there for cybersecurity in general. I, I suppose it's more about risk analysis than productivity, or is there a link between the two? Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. Um, what are you risking by uh, allowing that data to be available somewhere else? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of companies uh, are actually, they're considering cybersecurity, but I, I often look at a house and people are very careful about locking the front door where you've got windows. And if somebody really wants to get in, they smash the window. And it's the, exactly the same in the world of cybersecurity. Um, there, are, there are so many windows in the building that you, you need to be aware of. That uh, if if this is something really important to you, you need to take it very seriously and do a proper audit. Duncan, what's your uh, what's your take on what you've heard recently? Uh, well, Luke actually touched on the main sort of um, the main areas really is sort of segregating your uh, factory network from your control network, and and importantly, the, the customers we've uh, implemented um, sort of solutions with have generally kept uh, their data in house; they haven't put it to the cloud. And in any case, it would be that that's, that side of things would be fairly meaningless to anyone outside 
um, it wouldn't that's not the risk. The, 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 risk. the risk element is really tied in with essentially attacks from outside um, to, to actually compromise the equipment. So that's why it's important to have <coughs> your, your monitoring segregated from your control. Uh, yeah, physically, yeah, your, your network's physically on you know, separate networks, so there isn't a route in for someone to do something nefarious to your control system, which is the real risk here, um, rather than rather than someone sort of knowing that you've made fifty widgets an hour. That's the um, that's yeah, that, that's that's where the risk lies, and that's mm -hmm. and there are, there are sort of much for, there are plenty of experts out there who will uh, help you sort of batten all that down with encryption and firewalls and all the rest of it but um, one of the things I always say to someone is if you want your machine to be 100% secure and not be able to be attacked then don't connect it to anything because it's at some point someone will do something silly and leave the door open or could do potentially so if you if you if your if your machine doesn't have to be connected to uh, the outside world then why do so unless you really need to or only do so if you need to do some remote maintenance, if it's that critical, uh, I mean, it's, that's that's the, the approach I would take. If it's really that critical, then does it really need to connect to the outside world? Yeah, I mean, there's more more and more pressure, isn't there, on OT systems to connect to IT systems so that you can utilise the data being collected. But very often, the vulnerability is is on the shop floor. So, you know, I suppose it's a matter of balancing risk against benefit again uh, a, um, a friend of mine uh, their organization um, had the I'd say only they only takes one 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 weak link in the chain their organization was compromised because there was hidden in the cupboard a Windows XP machine which of course has run out of support and had all sorts of vulnerabilities and someone basically got in through the Windows XP machine which was doing something fairly inane like running a, running a, a, a boiler system and got in and, and um, did a ransom a ransomware oh. um, crypto locked uh, their entire you know, the entire suite of machines on their network so that was a very expensive well it wasn't expensive so much it's just they lost all their data because they weren't going to pay the, the ransom. Um, and that was just one machine. So it only takes it only takes one person to leave the door open by putting an insecure device on the network. So, but that's that's really kind of a discussion for sort of more sort of cybersecurity and yeah. and for sort of experts in that field. Yeah. But it, it, it's really that simple that someone had a PC in a cupboard that they didn't know didn't even know was on the network, and and that was the route in. Yeah. Okay, Alan. Well, you're. Um... You're you're a host, so if you want to sum up and add any further points, and then we'll uh, respect the red clock. Sorry, um, Steve, I meant to say. <laughs> I was looking around, then. <laughs> um, for me, um, there's lots of material out there available: uh, calculations, definitions, formulas, uh, and worked examples. And uh, as it started with the calculation. Um, I think that's what puts a lot of people off. But there's a, there's a couple of great websites that I point people to. Anybody wants them, they can come and grab me afterwards and I'll show them what to go to. But um, it's not to be afraid uh, of OEE. Um, but the data is critical. Get the data right where you're taking it from. Bring everybody with you on that journey and you will get the rewards out of OEE fairly quickly. Brilliant. Okay. 
Well, thank you very much indeed to our panel. Perhaps we oh we have a we have a we have a question. So we <laughs> hi, um, I'm David. I'm a colleague of Sam's at Novatech, and I just uh, I thought it was great for the panel. Really appreciate it. I just felt there's a couple of points that perhaps didn't have a chance to come up, and I'm just yep. conscious there may be people in the audience who are afraid of OE, and, and it relates back to um, the very first question we had that came up, I think, um, in one of the, uh, just after one of the presentations. And mm. for me, I, I think it's worth mentioning that OEE actually isn't a great plant floor visual metric, right? Because it can be demotivating. Not saying don't put it on the plant floor, but it's actually really valuable improvement metric. So it's great for the people who care about it because it does say 100% of your perfect day, what are we achieving and, and where are the gaps? So actually, for the plant floor, you'd be better using something like performance to target. Yeah, it should be based on what are they supposed to achieve in this day. It doesn't matter if they're running at twenty-five percent, as long as they're on target of what we're capable of doing at the moment. So I just thought it was worth raising that point. And the second point that I think has come out a little bit, but it's worth pointing out, is the value of OEE is that it points you to the area that you need to improve to improve your OE number. And it's more than just those three. It's more than the availability, performance, and quality. You break those down into something like the six losses. So you take it down another level. So for people who are not aware, you break down availability into breakdowns and planned stops. What that does is, and, and that's pretty easy, even in a manual system, that's easy to do. But the point is, you then know where to improve, right? Because we're engineers, we all think, well, the machine's running badly, we've got to We've got to improve the machine. We've got to fix that, that issue that keeps happening that breaks it down. But actually, if it takes three hours to change over, <laughs> yeah, in an eight-hour shift, it takes three hours to change over, and you change over twice. Fixing your machine to make it run better when it's actually running for that two hours is not going to achieve very much. Whereas if you could bring your three-hour stoppage down to 20 minutes, you're going to make a huge difference. And I think that's important to make sure everyone's aware that that's the value of OEE. The number to the point that was made, the number almost doesn't matter. In fact, as most of these guys will know, when you go into somebody who is measuring OEE manually and you put in a system that measures it better, their OEE number goes down. They've just spent money and the performance has gone down because it hasn't. It's just more accurate because that number is irrelevant. It's just the direction it goes. And it's critical to know that it's pointing you to what you need to do differently. Yeah, very good point. Thank you. Okay, well, with that, we'll uh, we'll wrap up then. So thanks very much to our to our panel and to our audience for uh, for attending and coming out in the sunshine today. I hope you found it worthwhile. It's um it's lunchtime now. Um, so when you leave, please leave by the door that I'm pointing to because we. You know, I suppose it doesn't really matter. We're on a one-way system, but hey, we finished anyway. Um, so perhaps if you just um, appreciate our uh, panelists' efforts in the usual way. Thank you for listening to Talking Industry. Stay tuned across all podcast apps, follow us on social, subscribe to our newsletters, and keep up to date at talkingindustry.org.